Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gone. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Sonoma Restaurant refuses to allow server to wear Black Lives Matter mask. Port and sherry sales on the rise in the UK. Jameson's sales are up by 3%. And as ever, our wine of the week. begin with our week in wine. So what were you up to, Matthew? Well, I was perusing Instagram last week and discovered um, a promotion for a webinar on Saturday featuring young German winemakers. And I thought, that's a nice way to spend a Saturday afternoon. And it was organised by a new importer called Source Material, which is a collaboration between uh, the von Boden importer, who imports a lot of good German wine. And... um, a friend of his, and they're just really focusing on hard-to-find wines which are made by young German winemakers which aren't available in the US, and so they just talk to those different winemakers, and it's a lot of fun, because it really gives you an idea of how vibrant the wine scene is in Germany, and there's a lot of unexpected treasures which are coming up, as young winemakers kind of work on their past, work that their parents and grandparents did, to create something a bit new and a bit more dynamic. And just reminded me just how exciting a wine country Germany is. It's not just Riesling and it's not just sweet Riesling. Yes, I listened in as well. Uh, all quite interesting. And I noticed the term spontaneous fermentation came up quite a lot. It's funny listening to German winemakers, even the young ones. They're very adamant about what they say and there's no way you're going to argue or question them. And so the, they just kept repeating spontaneous fermentation, large oak, oak barrels as a matter of course, and just... They're very serious about what they do, even if they're young and um, experimental. And not so much related to wine, uh, but we did get out on a hike this past week, and you accompanied me for the first time in quite some time. And I think that boded well for you because we stumbled on a new bar after the hike called Big Rock, and just in Marin County. Uh, Nice outdoors, had a bunch of beers on tap, uh, so we enjoyed a nice beer outdoors and it felt almost like things were back to normal. Uh, I even lost my wallet, which is something that only happened back in the past when we actually went out. This really shouldn't be news, but it's so rare that we get to go to a bar that uh, we're very happy to discover a new one, let alone an open one. And I will just say that Katie told me that it was going to be a very flat walk, because I do like flat walks. But it turned out to be a near vertical hill. Uh, but the way down was more was easier, and at the bottom was a bar, which I'm always very happy about. A pint of Pliny will always see you through. And then just one further thing. Uh, this morning I interviewed um, an importer of Italian wine, specifically about Sardinian wine, which uh, we tasted recently, which was a really fun tasting, including some very unusual uh, wines made under floor. And so that will be coming out on my own podcast in the next week. So if you want to learn more about Sardinian wine, stay tuned. And finally... I was the subject of a podcast interview, which was very exciting, um, on X Chateau uh, with our friend Robert Vernick and Peter Young are the hosts of that podcast. And if you haven't checked it out, you really should. It's about the business of wine. Um, And they interview uh, new people, new kind of influential wine people, um, spirits people, kind of covering the drinks business um, as a whole. And it's, it's really great. So be sure to check it out. 
And in March, I think is when the episode that I was interviewed on will will be published uh, about batonage. So we talked a little bit about my colleague Rebecca Johnson and I, uh, we talked a little bit about the event, the, the annual forum about women in wine, and then we talked a little bit about the new mentorship program uh, that Batonage launched early this year, and about the mission to really encourage diversity, equity, inclusion in the wine industry. So it was a really uh, fun, uh, interesting conversation, and uh, we'll have to promote it once uh, once it comes out so all you listeners can check it out i look forward to listening to it and now on with the news the pod last week reported that the girl and the fig a famed local restaurant just around the corner from our office in sonoma remained closed despite california easing restrictions to allow outdoor dining We thought that it was closed because, like many other businesses, it hadn't been prepared for the unexpected change in state policy. Turns out, however, that the reasons are a bit more complicated than that. On the 4th of February, a former employee called Kimmy Stout posted on social media on how she had felt forced to quit her job as a server at the restaurant as they had forbidden her from wearing a Black Lives Matter face mask while working. After her post went viral, the restaurant received a barrage of negative reviews on Yelp and even death threats. Under police advice, the restaurant has remained closed. The girl in the fig said that they had merely initiated a standardization in the face masks staff were wearing, in accordance with with their general uniform policy. However, three weeks before the order to wear plain masks, a customer had complained in August about the Black Lives Matter face mask and Stout felt that the restaurant was out of touch had not supported her, and that she felt compelled to leave her position. The controversy reflects different reactions to the Black Lives Matter movement, but also different attitudes to making a social protest. Should a server be wearing a garment that supports a political movement? Or is Black Lives Matter a human rights movement rather than a political one? Should small businesses like the girl in the fig demonstrate their political and social leanings or try to remain neutral? Should a restaurant like The Girl in the Fig, which values its position in the community, support or censure its employees and customers who feel marginalized? Those are some loaded questions. A lot of questions, yes. And these are questions that businesses do have to answer, even if they prefer not to. And I do understand both sides of the argument here, because The Girl in the Fig, everyone wears the same uniform uh, to give an identity to the restaurant. And so having a neutral face mask kind of fits into that uniform. But at the same time, I understand uh, Kimmy Stout's position that she wanted to show her support for Black Lives Matter, which is an extremely important issue. And that she felt um, that not being able to do so was kind of denying her right to uh, free speech. Well, and if anyone knows the clientele of Sonoma, the town of Sonoma, uh, they'll know that it is quite old school, uh, pretty conservative attitudes around there. Uh, so I'm sure Girl in the Fig were thinking of their clientele when uh, preventing Kimmy from wearing her mask. And in the article that we read, uh, Kimmy stated that had Girl in the Fig posted a Black Lives Matter sign somewhere in the restaurant, in the window, as as we've seen a lot of businesses do here in California, uh, she wouldn't have felt compelled to wear a mask like that. So she really felt it was a shortcoming of the restaurant. Yeah, as you mentioned, Sonoma's quite, that's quite an older population, so quite some more um, conservative attitudes. California values itself on being quite liberal, but in fact, I think a lot of people 
prefer to keep politics out of everything, whereas a younger generation really want to uh, showcase their identity and show support for people um, who are marginalised in society. So I think it is a generational um, gap. Yeah, and, you know, one of the questions here was, you know, is Black Lives Matter, is that movement social or political? And what should it be? But I would argue social. And her mask was pretty subtle as well. And I think complaining about that kind of protest seems fairly petty. The pod has been reporting for a while on the up and down sales in the drinks industry. But while there have been clear losers during the pandemic, there have also been beneficiaries. Some have been more predictable, such as off-premise sales and supermarkets, but others have been less predictable, which includes recent figures which show a rise in the sales of port and sherry in the UK. In 2020, sales of port in the UK rose by 11.4% in volume and 2.8% in value, making the UK the fourth biggest consumer of port in the world. Also in 2020, France established itself as the world's biggest consumer of port in both volume and value, overtaking Portugal. But although tourism is down in Portugal, as one can imagine, the country still remains the second biggest consumer in terms of volume and third for value. Brands owned by Symington's saw particular rises in sales. Coburn's and Graham's both rose by over 20%. And overall, sales before Christmas were especially strong. Likewise, Sherry also saw increases in sales, with a rise of 15% in the three-month period leading up to Christmas in the UK. Perhaps most surprisingly, this increase has continued into the first weeks of 2021, when generally sales fall. As with port, home drinking has been given as a reason for the increase, as has experimentation with making cocktails. It may also be that different generations of families forced to socialise together have influenced each other's drinking habits. Overall, the 45 wine category in the UK in 2020 rose by 12% in value and 7.5% in volume. This is all good news, isn't it, Katie? So my question to you is, did you get that piece of information about home drinking as been given a reason for the increase? Is that uh, your personal take on it or was that covered in the news article? That was covered by representatives of both port and sherry producers. And we have actually previously reported on the pod that sales of port rise during economic crises because more consumers drink at home, because they don't um, drive, so they can drink these stronger drinks, and also maybe because they're depressed, they need a bit more alcohol. Well, and they certainly keep longer. So, you know, if you're hesitant to open a a bottle of your standard dry wine, which you typically want to drink within a a few days, uh, something like a fortified wine you can keep open for months in a in the fridge and you know it's still going to be good and you can have little sips each night along with your dessert and no problem at all but remember teal pepe for example is a dry wine and should be drunk immediately Uh, we used to have teal pepe in the house and it'd be there for about five or six years that's not how teal pepe is supposed to be drunk and just to clarify when you say our household, you're not referring it to our household currently. You're referring to the one that you grew up in back in the UK. Is that right? Exactly. In the 80s and the 90s, there'd be a glass of tea pepe poured every Christmas and it would just stay there. And people have a bad opinion of tea pepe because they don't drink it straight away. If you're drinking a wine that's five years old or that's been open for five years, it may um, decrease in quality. Well, I'm glad we made that clarification because rest assured in this household, uh, we would never let a glass of Tio Pepe go to waste.
continuing the positive news and sales figures, Irish distillers, who own whiskey producer Jameson's, announced a global increase of 3% in the second half of 2020, with the UK up 12%, USA up 7%, Russia up 7%, and Ireland up 4%. Jameson's sold 4.75 million cases around the world, with over 2 million in the US alone. Redbreast, Middleton, and the Spot range also saw huge increases in sales, as well as in the ready-to-drink category. Irish distillers commented on the fact that the premiumization of the spirits category is a continuing trend which has been encouraged further by at-home drinking, as seen by the success of Redbreast 27-year-old and the new Blue Spot whiskey released in November. So this just continues the stories of spirits companies being successful, uh, despite or actually because of the pandemic, and the continuing trend for premiumization, which is always good news for the drinks business. That's right, and we've been reporting on this quite a bit, haven't we? Obviously, um, on-premise sales have fallen dramatically, but off-premise sales have risen to more or less balance um, those sales. It really depends on how the company is structured. But if people are buying better drinks to drink at home, hopefully that trend will continue into uh, when restaurants open up again and people are prepared to spend a little bit more understanding um, why certain drinks are better than others. Yes, that will be really fun to see uh, how consumers interact at the bar once we're able to sit at the bar again and and look at that wall of whiskeys behind the barman. Uh, People might actually know what they're looking for. And this news had come as a little bit of a surprise because one of our local bars is called Jameson's Roaring Donkey and it's unfortunately been closed pretty much um, since last March. And they specialise, or one of their special specialities is serving Jameson's on tap. And every time uh, someone orders a shot, there is a counter behind the bar which uh, ticks along and they have like 100,000 shots that have been served of Jameson's in that bar. It should be noted that there's a university close by. And it also should be noted that there is a donkey that serves the whiskey on tap as well, kind of. But despite their closure, Jameson's is still doing okay. And we look forward to drinking there again, hopefully sometime soon. And now for our wine of the week, which is Matthew. Well, we're going back to Austria. Uh, The wine is made by Birgit Braunstein. Great varieties of Blaufrankisch. The vintage is 2015. The region is Bergenland. And the subregion, or the DAC, as they call the Appalachians in Austria, is Leitherberg. Yeah, it's sort of been a Blaufrankisch theme this week uh, in the Wind Up Weekly household. Uh, you're actually currently working on a piece on the Austrian grape variety. That's right, because um, by chance, more than by planning, Blackpool Matt's Wine Club, which is my online wine club business, has three different Blaufrankisch in the wine club. One from Austria, one from Germany, and one from New York. And that's because I've been tasting some really good examples recently. This isn't actually one of them, but another example of just how good Blaufrankisch can be. Yes, and then last week we had a blind tasting organized by a friend of ours, Lori. Uh, There were three wines from European countries that aren't France, Italy, or Spain. So that's a typical uh, MW question, always very frustrating because those are the regions we always like to go to, uh, the most well-known anyway. And so that narrowed down the choices somewhat. Uh, And in the end, once the wines were revealed, uh, we saw that there was a German Pinot Noir, uh, which we thought was Zeno Mavro from Greece. So 
a bit of a miss there. And then there was also a Baga from 2000, and we both got that. It was Portuguese, um, but did went more towards the blend, um, and we didn't get that it was that old either. I think I said it was 2010. Yeah, it's remarkably fresh for such an old wine, but the cork did break, which made us think that it could be Portuguese. And finally, there was a Blaufränkisch from Austria, which we both correctly identified. Congrats to us, uh, and which we loved. And uh, Lori allowed us to take that bottle home to enjoy with dinner, which was very generous of her. And not least because it was so identifiably Blaufränkisch. Uh, meaty, peppery, all those good things. Yes, and I was very relieved that I guessed it right, that it was Blaufränkisch, because it just felt... And I was really pleased that I got it right because it felt so Blaufrankish, as you said. And I feel I've been getting to grips with that great variety recently, just tasting all these different examples. And it's that meatiness that I really get with Blaufrankish. Uh, the wine itself is made by Birgit Brownstein, whose family has been making wine in Bergenland, near Neuseedlersee, since 1632. So a little bit of history and provenance there. Even better, she farms biodynamically. And the grapes come from limestone soil vineyards on hills overlooking the large, shallow lake. I don't know if you've ever been to Neuseedlersee, but it's a very, very strange lake because it's huge, but very, very shallow, only a metre deep. And the wine is aged for one year in a combination of small and large oak barrels. And this wine was so balanced uh, at 13% alcohol, uh, concentrated fruit, spice, those meat aromas, firm tannins, medium body, and a long finish. And everything that we love about red wine, really. Yeah, if you like Pinot Noir, if you like Syrah, this is the kind of wine for you. It was $33, $34, so a little on the pricey side, but I thought it um, it justified that price point. Yeah, sometimes it's worth just paying a little bit more. That's premiumization for you. Cheers to that. So thank you for listening this Wine Wednesday. I hope you enjoyed the wind-up, and catch us next week. Uh, we'll be back in your feed on Wednesday with more news in wine. Yeah, so just rate and review us. We always appreciate your feedback, and we enjoy sharing the news with you. So cheerio. Cheerio.